welcome back to the Rural Voice, the National Rural Education Association uh, podcast series. We are in rare form today because we have, number one, a great guest. So we, we're, we're going to introduce her in a second. But we have the whole group together. The band is back together. We're back, baby. We're back. Back. back and I want to say maybe 100% um, on the physical side, probably not 100% on the social emotional side, and definitely not <laughs> on the immunity side, correct? Yeah. Intellect side, I don't think we've ever been 100%. Well, Chris, Chris is. I think you and I, you know, we put our 50% that. together and we make 100%. So you're saying I, that we, without us, Chris would be not able to do the show. I think that's what I'm hearing you say, Jared. Well, you could interpret it that way, but I was saying opposite. Like he's the brains of the operation. And so it, it takes it takes us adding 50% of his intellect together for us to even make a hundred. So, so you're gotta, saying I recognize who the brains are, man. You're, you're saying that we are the reason for the show. Is that, I think that's what I'm hearing from this. So thank you so much for bringing that to the forefront, Jerry. I feel like <laughs> that, that maybe you think I'm speaking a foreign language. It's a good topic, you know, for the EL, EL topic. So let's keep going. They don't want to hear that. We're, we're just excited that we haven't been on podcast. We got to quit uh, chit-chatting with each other. That is true. So so let me go ahead and start. This episode is sponsored by My Credential, mycredential.org. Professional development, credentialing for your rural teachers, remote access. When you can't send them to conferences and you can't have folks come to train, they can do their self-paced micro-credentialing. And Jared, since we're doing a show with Dr. Cody and we're going to talk about, you know, in our state, we call it EL or ELL, but most places, multi, it's an ML. So I think that's what uh, Maria is going to talk about. But you have something for my credential that would fit into this world as well. Yeah, we we actually offer three uh, different modules for classroom teachers on how to support EL students, uh, in particular in rural areas where there might not be wraparound supports for those students or a, a full-time EL person. So this gives teachers some strategies uh, that they can uh, employee in their classrooms to support those students. So yeah, so great topic. To line we're on. making that connection. So we're going to move forward. We we do have our three co-hosts here together, but we are happy. We're excited. We're honored to have Dr. Maria Cody on our podcast to talk about her research, a recent conference, and talk about some federal funding issues that happened in the past that we need to correct moving forward. So Dr. Cody, thank you for being on the podcast and welcome. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Wow, what a pleasure to be here with you all, you rock stars. It's a great company to be with. And I'm delighted to hear about my credentialing and the micro-credentials for educators of rural, multilingual, or English learner students. Um, and that just tells me that, yeah, this is a big issue in the United States, and I'm so happy to be able to talk about it with you all. Hey, hey thanks. And, and we're excited. And I'm going to do a little uh, a little asterisk on this one. Chris and I did, we recorded this show with Dr. Cody and we had a little technical difficulties. So here's the positive. You get a, I guess, a not a rerun, but a second run of a first run, a which polished, makes it a better run. A polished. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it's not Chris's fault. It's not the IT support's fault. It is actually, I believe, I think the federal government, but I'm just going to throw that out there and y'all can say <laughs> what you want to. There goes all our grants. There's all our grants. rural America. So, 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 yeah. so, Dr. Cody, Maria, first, first thing I want to 
let let our listeners know kind of your work, where you're currently working and what university you worked at before, and then we're going to get into your conference a little bit. So tell us a little bit about your background. Oh, sure. Well, thanks so much. Um, yeah, like I said, it's a real pleasure to be here with all you experts, and I'm so happy that we're able to make these connections. It's so important in the United States. Um, so yeah, so I'm a professor of multilingual education at North Carolina State University. Uh, and I just, I love it up here in North Carolina State. Uh, we do a lot of work. Um, and one of the reasons I, I really love the work at, uh, in, in the state of North Carolina is we really uh, work to serve the people of the state. And uh, when I say the people of the state, I mean all the people of the state. And, and that's really clear to me in the mission of the university. Um, so I've been here just over a year, believe it or not, just not a whole long, lot of time in North Carolina, but have been following and watching along with lots of changes demographic changes and educational changes in North Carolina for many, many years. Um, and I was, uh, prior to that, I was at the University of Florida in North Central Florida, and I work in out- Boo, boo, boo. Oh. No balls, no <laughs> Sorry, uh, sorry. See, it was, I bet it was a much more polite um, uh, record or, or session without me there last time, but so I had, but I had to say that as a ball fan, I'm sorry. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll let Alan Alan comment on that. <laughs> I'm just gonna say probably so, but uh, I understand where he's coming from. But we're, we're good there. Uh, promise that'll be the last uh, athletic reference, football reference. I hope so. We're good to go from there. Um, <laughs> hey Maria, tell us a little bit about the conference. I know we did a con y'all had a conference, and I, and I have to say this: Doctor uh, Darius Means recommended us to do this show. He went to the conference and he was so excited. He serves on our board as well, does a lot of research work for us. So he recommended this based off the conference. So tell us a little bit about the conference. Oh, yeah. Well, shout out to Darius Means, Dr. Means. He's just a stellar human being, you know. I mean, he's he's where it's at. He's just good people. Um, so, yeah, Darius was at the conference. So, so uh, last month, so the middle of September, um, I hosted at North Carolina State University the first conference on rural English learner education and research, the first national conference on rural English learner education research. And I, I say that because um, the, the acronym actually stands for the word CREER, which is a word in Spanish. For those of you who are multilingual Spanish speakers listening, uh, CREER, as you know, means to believe in English. So we hosted the conference, this To Believe conference, and it was a, a phenomenal conference. It was, um, we had about, uh, not, not a huge conference, about 52 people over a two and a half day period. And we included people from across the United States. And uh, when I say um, lots of representation, we had folks from the Office of English Language Acquisition, the director, Montserrat Garibay, came down from Washington, D.C., uh, we had our state governor's office, the Office um, for Immigrant Integration, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, and we had community advocates, mental health professionals, as well as educators who work in rural schools and communities, leaders. We had leaders speak about what's happening across rural America for this population and, um, you know, te teacher educators and researchers as well. So we, we brought together a real diverse group and, uh, and we actually had a lot of fun. It wasn't like your, your typical kind of conference. We built in uh, lots of fun activities. So, um, so I was really happy. And the, the, the objective was to get people together from across the country that can put a footprint out there, really begin to galvanize people around rural multilingual learners. And we know 
um, the demographic data are just um, just really keep speaking to us. And we know from our work that this is an important and growing population in rural America. Yeah, I, I think when people think about rural, if they're not from rural communities, well, even a lot of people from rural communities, they picture just like Caucasian uh, flannel shirt wearing, you know, uh, mm -hmm. demographic. They don't think about people of color in rural communities that much, you know. And so, um, I, I love that you're tackling this, and it and that um, there's some resources out there now, and actually a spotlight on this that you're shining to uh, help support schools and districts and. Uh, one question I had, and I don't want to jump in and, and mess up the the awesome continuity of the, the 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 first recording, but one thing that's always struck me is the transient nature of some of the communities. And I, I, we were talking about the uh, Northeast Tennessee, and and there's a, a high ELL uh, EL population up there, but it's it's only part of the year during uh, whenever they're uh, planting and, and harvesting. Mm -hmm. So is that an issue that you see in other parts of the country or, or what's what's the uh, your take on that? Yeah, well, that's a great question, um, in part because it's uh, it's talking about how actually complex this population is. I say this population, it's uh, when I when I use the word or the term English learner, we sort of collectively across the United States, I think, would recognize that we're referring to students who are in the process of and receiving, identified for receiving special English language learning services in uh, in schools, in public schools, really what we're talking about, EL. Um, the state like North Carolina in March of 2022 changed the language around that and are now referring to this these students receiving specialized services as multilingual learners. And, um, and that's been a way to sort of highlight all of the linguistic resources that and, and cultural resources and strengths that these kids bring to schools. Um, so that's that's sort of a group that's identified for receiving language learning services. And it's a very important group. Um, but, in, but in addition to that, there's, there, there are other groups, uh, and that is um, our migrant education population. And those are Students, as we know, whose families cross district lines more frequently than every 36 months, and they receive migratory they might receive migrant education services, but 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 yeah, so that that group frequently, those two groups frequently intersect um, quite a lot. And um, I know my years in Florida, I worked a lot down with folks that um, would start harvest season down in South Florida, say near Amakali, which is um, big uh, citrus growing area, orange growing area. And those families would follow seasonal harvests and move all the way up, actually all the way up to here, right to North Carolina. Last week, I was out in a rural school. And uh, as I was driving back, I just kind of pulled over. There were uh, some uh, some crop pickers. They were, they were picking sweet potatoes um, in the fields. Uh, so this time of the year, they're harvesting some of that product as well. So it's the children of some of these families that are in the process of learning English. Um, and also there are families that we see increasingly across the country that are settled out into communities, into spaces, and they're working in maybe in construction or in um, in building and, and they'll they'll travel if they if they're relatively close to a more urbanized area they might be doing hotel work they might be doing all kinds of things so the the el or ml population is very diverse 
not only in terms of the work that they do, but the labor they provide to rural communities across the country is just uh, unprecedented. Yeah, I, I appreciate, Marie, you sharing that. In fact, um, something we talked about before, too, was that part of that diversity is, is that just because, you know, a number of these folks in, the, in, in these various communities speak Spanish doesn't mean that they don't have a number of other languages that they're, of course, coming in with, a lot of different cultures. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was wondering if you'd say a little bit more about that. And I also like to real quickly before you answer the question, I want to give you a shameless plug that uh, your recent article called It's Like Fuel, Igniting Rural English Learner Education Through Place Consciousness, or sorry, Place Conscious Professional Development. You and your colleagues did an amazing job on that article. It's a very, very rich research study. Definitely worth a read. It's very accessible, even if you're not a research or science -y kind of person. So just want to give a shameless plug and we'll actually put a link to your article in the description for the episode. So but would you, do you mind sort of speaking to some of that diversity, like some of the different communities that you've been seeing, like what their makeups are? Sure, absolutely. Well, for, well, first, thanks for the thanks for the plug for the article. We um, we really worked as a as a team on that, and it um, hopefully it's accessible. I try to, I try to really write and in ways that really provide um, anchors and entry points for people to understand why research is important, but also ways that they have it's some takeaways they have. There's there's you know uh, that are really directly applicable to the work that people do. So um, that was a that was truly that work was a labor of love in a community with lots of people that work together in a professional development. Uh, program that included educational leaders uh, that were part of the program, and we saw incredible uh, changes that happened. There's also a film, a documentary film related to some of that work that we made that um, that maybe I can give you the link to. It's called Small Town Big Dreams, and it's about a rural community that transformed some of the educational practices for their rural EL population in, in North Central Florida. So that's that's really um, interesting. People might like to see that. Um, so in terms of the diversity though, yeah, there's no doubt. Um, we know that we know from from actually recent shifts in immigration um, data that uh, what we used to see, for instance, in the United States, it's a contentious issue, but the United States border with Mexico and the southern US border um, is an area, it's a really politicized issue. Um, you know, we haven't had a full kind of immigration reform policy, I think, since the Reagan era. I think it was 1986, if I'm not mistaken. So it's been a long time, and educators are having to sort of unravel what those policies mean for the children and the students that they serve. And so it's a it's really complicated, right? And we're all sort of trying to figure out what what does that look like. Um, but, you know, the the numbers of people, immigrants coming into the United States from from the South have have in the past been mostly Mexican background and Guatemalan, some Honduran background. But in fact, in the past few years, people will see certainly in the past year that the majority of people coming to the United States that that way, but by that means, has been Venezuelans. Um, the largest population has been Venezuelans and Cubans and Haitians coming over. So it's just interesting how internationally those demographics also shift. And so what that means for rural schools when families show up, you know, is that kids come uh, speaking other languages. They might speak a particular variety of Spanish. So, so for instance, so I lived in Argentina, Buenos Aires, and um, and so the Spanish I speak is different than the Spanish that another country might speak. Some of the terms are different and so on. And so that makes a difference. Um, 
And also a lot of the kids we see speak multiple languages. They could speak an indigenous language. Um, I have long experience with a family that I worked with in North Central Florida that were from the Hidalgo region of Mexico. Um, and they spoke a dialect, uh, they spoke an indigenous language called Otomi in the home. And they had an Otomi Bible. They had literacy practices that they followed in Otomi at home. And they they went to a, um, a mass service, they were Catholic, went to a mass and had the mass was in Spanish. So they spoke Spanish. And then, of course, the kids went to school and they spoke, it was English in school. And, you know, so these kids are really navigating not only different languages named languages, but also maybe different varieties of Spanish. You know, they, they, um, if you say, um, you know, orange juice, um, in many Latin American countries, it's Hugo de Naranja, it's orange juice, but, um, but, um, in Puerto Rico, it's Hugo de China. It's called China juice. Uh, I don't know why that's the case, but but that's what it's referred to, right? So, so these are things that educators, um, the real nuances, right. But things that are shifting across America and how educators in rural communities um, are attending to and taking up the work with multilingual learners in their spaces. I, I think it's an interesting point about pockets of other uh, nationalities and, and people coming from other countries. And my wife, for example, she's an assistant principal in an elementary school in southeast Tennessee, where we live, that has a, a pretty significant uh, Pacific Islander population. Like, and there's no rhyme or reason for it. They just there's a, just a, a a big population that's growing, and mm-hmm. you don't think about Pacific Islanders moving to rural southeast Tennessee. But um, I, so let me ask you this: What do you foresee as being some of the big levers that you know either organizations like NREA or or other groups that you work with can pull to help? leverage resources that are out there, spread the word more. So what in, in your mind, what are some of the those big moves that national organizations can make? Yeah, wow. Uh that that might is that the magic wand question coming? <laughs> about you getting last question. Oh, oh <laughs> see that's also not fair. I just now realize that that you um you you've got the heads up on the magic wand question. But no, that's not it. That's not the okay, magic Okay. All right. Well, well, okay. So good. Cause I want my magic wand answer. Uh, I'm going to hold on to that. Um, but, but there are, I think, so you're asking like, what are the big levers? Well, you know, I think when we think about rural communities, how they all, they function very, very differently. I was in two rural school, two rural districts um, just this morning and very different, just the two, even if we're in the same state and they're, they're within driving distance of each other, very different things are happening. Um, but but both were kind of saying, well, actually, two or three things keep coming out right across the country. And one is that um, even though uh, so rural, rural districts need more human resources and financial resources, and I'm preaching to the choir, I'm sure, with this. But the human resource part is interesting because more and more I hear educators saying we need to have our leaders also involved in preparation and programs so for instance, when they walk through or they're doing walkthrough or they're they're the instructional lead for a school that they also understand what uh, best practices or differentiated practices and assessments looks like for multilingual learners. It's a di- it's a different space. I think those those some of those practices are good practices for all kids, but I always say with some of our multilingual learners, like these are 
They're not real optional, Gra you know, graphic organizers and differentiated assessments, things like that are, they're, they're not optional for, for kids that are in the process of learning English. They might be good tools for monolingual English speakers or learners. So what I'm hearing a lot and seeing a lot is that the need to prepare leaders uh, for this population, and that would be like a human resource lever, right? In, in addition, um, districts are really, and I see up in North Carolina, I'll give you an example. Um, one of our school districts is uh, pretty remote rural, and they have about 720 identified multilingual learners, that's our term, and they have two and a half ESL teachers to serve those, those students. Um, that's really crazy. And it's half because one of the high school teachers works half time as the coordinator, and they know they need at least 10 more ESL prepared English as a second language teachers. And then I have another district, uh, also rural, more kind of fringe rural location. They do a lot of poultry processing in that area and they have a one to 40 ratio. So they have much more human access to human resources and they're able to draw from the business community and tap into the business community, frankly, um, to creatively find ways to bring in more dollars for more ESL teachers. So really varied, they have really varied experiences. That's that's interesting to me. But both of those areas say they need leaders who also understand the population. So that's one thing. Um, and then the financial resources, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I just, just real briefly, I think what we saw from around 2001, 2002, when No Child Left Behind passed and um, the US Department of Education removed what used to be called Title VII funding in in the from 19, part of the Bilingual Education Act, 1968 to about 2001, 2002. When that funding from Title VII went under to Title III funding, um, my read of the numbers and the data is that the rural districts that were, that at the time were low density numbers of, of English learners really lost out because the, the federal government went more toward formula funding as opposed to discretionary funding for that population. So when we think about that, 22 years ago, that big, huge shift happened, at least in my in my field, right? In that in that my wheelhouse there, we were like, uh-oh. Um, and so 22 years later, we found that the numbers of multilingual learners in rural communities is just astronomical in some places, um, really, really high, 55%, 30%, 20%. 20%. Um, the national average is is probably around nine ten percent, but still uh, in some communities it's really high. So what's happened since then is the funding really hasn't followed, or it's 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 in, in, uh, probably some one of our one of our financial experts or our school economists is probably going to call in and say, wait, what? Um, but um, so so I so we see at least in my experience, I'm seeing rural schools have increasing numbers every year and not the resources, human and financial resources, to be able to provide the kinds of services that they need for students and families. And, and that brings up a good point because it's almost a double whammy with the change of title funding in the early uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and then this increase in population in those rural areas as well, which, you know, and Jerry brought up a good point about the levers and all that, but I, I just, you know, I, th I think that's the biggest thing. So if someone's out there listening that is a policymaker or work in an office, either state level or federal level, this needs to come back to the forefront. We need to discuss how can we help these these uh, rural communities with the dollars. And we know the funding model doesn't always help us, but typically the formula funding model doesn't always help rural schools and rural communities. 
but this is a double whammy on that. And 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 Maria, I want to hit on because you did a study uh, that that Chris brought up, and you were really working with rural teachers and rural leaders around professional development. And, and I I want to think we talked about in the past was that you, they requested to do more face to face hybrid. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that was important when we talked oh. about that before. Yeah, it's so it's interesting to me. Yeah, because, you know, that's also maybe um, maybe we could call it a triple whammy, Alan. I think, yeah. um, you know, we have when we're working out in rural communities and we're working with rural educators who are so knowledgeable about their communities and how they work. Um, we we sometimes get these these calls from the federal government to put out professional development. And of course, we always I always write for these and 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 make the argument that it's it's easier for high density um, districts with large, large numbers of multilingual learners and educators to put out an online professional development project, right? Where it's online and they've got, and, and analyze it and they've got big numbers. They've got what we call big high power in the analysis, right? So that makes sense in some cases for funding, but that that's not how it works in rural communities. So in this particular project, I worked with um, a school district and there were three county seats in that particular district and educators all over uh, the district with with elementary, middle and well, consolidated, consolidated middle high schools pretty much across the district. And so what I did was created teams of people that were school-based teams. Um, I couldn't always get a full school-based team with a leader and so on in there, but I got the school-based teams and we designed that originally with the coordinators, with the ELL coordinators, EL coordinators in the district and say, okay, well, teachers are busy. We're going to put uh, put the PD, uh, the initial PD online with on-site coaching. So we, okay, we'll put it online. After the first semester of the program, we kind of asked the educators, so how's it going? They said, but we really, we really like the PD and we like what we're doing, but we need to be together. Like we, we, we get it. Like we're okay. We're tired. We don't mind doing some of this online, but we need a space where we can get together. We can put our heads together. We can share stories and then we can make decisions and, and together and, and lead together from this one common place. So I actually thought that was great. So what we said, okay, well, we need to shift. We need to pivot here. So we pivoted the PD and we made um, some kind of weekend warrior classes. So it was, so it was around the schedule of the educators they still had some online work. They wanted some online, some reading and things like that to do. And when they got together on the weekends or in some of the afternoons, depended on the semester, um, they they said, okay, we're together. Now we want some extra support. I'm like, okay, what, what do we want? We want to go on field trips. We want to go to a peanut processing plant. We want to go meet families out in their homes and learn about the palm tree industry that they start, the, their, the work that they started. We want to bring in an immigration attorney. We want to bring in social workers so we can learn more about meeting the needs of these kids. And, and that's what we did. We said, okay, they want to be together in person. They want to bring in specialists to help them understand resources in the community and also things that families are going through and kids are facing and, and learn from there. And it was it was amazing what happened at that point because that's that's when the it's like fuel happened, right? When people got together they're their own best resource. They put their heads together and there were some tremendous outcomes that happened as a result of that shift. And and the, tell us a little bit about that they they demanded those field trips. And so what anything come out of those field trips really interesting that you would like to share with us? Oh yeah, like yeah, for sure. Like one thing for some educators knew, but others probably didn't know like 
like visually when they send homework home for kids um, that are in non-English speaking homes, then there's the resources that kids have. They don't have the resources at home or an adult that maybe understands the instruction of the homework to say, okay, um, here's what you got to do. I remember with my own kids, I'd be like, okay, hey, pull out, open the backpack. That's it. Time to, to pull it out. All right. This is what you've got to do. Number one, number two, number three, right. And kind of helping them. And so the educators realized the first thing is that they, they couldn't, that wasn't going to work uh, with English learner families um, in part because they're out working multiple jobs. The kids are coming home, maybe helping them. The families. Some of the families, their high school, their the family's educational background differs, and their definitely their language proficiency in English is different. So educators in those schools created spaces where they ensured that the kids, before they left to go home, they had a start. They knew what they had to do in the homework if there was home learning going on. They they knew what they had to do, and they provided them the resources so they could take everything home, finish it, and bring it back early the next morning. So they made changes like that. Um, some of the other things, this was really interesting. One of the other things that, a big thing that happened that's in this film is one of the rural schools said, okay, um, we have kids, um, English learners in all different kinds of elementary classrooms. And so, the, you know, we were kind of kind of joking about it. They were calling what was called like the spread them around model. And I, I kept laughing. I was saying, there's no such model as a spread them around model. That's <laughs> not a model. Um, so if you're doing that, that's not a model. Um, and the reason, but I understand the reason that that schools might do that. And that's because when teachers are being evaluated at the end of the year and they're getting evaluated based on student test scores, you know, um, and you have English learners that are learning the language, not likely to score highly on a standardized test that's really language heavy, um, the, the educators, the, the leaders felt that putting kids in different classrooms would kind of, right, spread it around, right, spread it yeah. around a little bit. So what this school did as a result of these um, field trips and learning together was they decided that they were going to put all of their English learners and bilingual kids, so not just ELs, but bilingual kids in the same classroom, in a community classroom. And when they did that, they put their veteran teacher in there with 23, 24 years of teaching experience who had written state standards and was an incredible teacher. So they put their best teacher in the community classroom. This is a fourth grade classroom. And then they provided one of their teaching assistants or their instructional assistants uh, to come in who was bilingual. And she was in the classroom full time. So they gave those kids bilingual support. So they put together a whole plan for these kids for the year. And they said, well, we're going to try this community classroom model for a year and see what happens. And so you know, at the end of the year, it was amazing to see the outcomes when the state standardized test scores came back in June. So they started it in August, and then the kids took the tests in uh, April, May, as they do, February, March, March, April. The test scores came back in June, and they had something like over 60, 62% met standards for this group at the end of the year in English language arts and 80 or 85% in mathematics. It was like off the charts. It was amazing. And it was, you know, it's really interesting because 
that's really what we need to start thinking about across the country is how do we put our um, put our heads together to provide multilingual learners um, with the best instruction we can, but also with supports that they need and knowing what's going to happen when they go home at night, the kind of support they could get at home for ongoing learning. And so there, there's a lot of a uh, lot of stories around what happened with that. But I was really pleased. And that school continues to do the community classroom today. That was a bunch of years ago that they started it. So they did come up with a model. Right. <laughs> it's a community school, it's a community classroom model. So, hey, Chris, um, why don't you uh, kind of lead in our next question? Yeah, no. Um, and actually, you kind of touched on part of this, which the other side of it is, of course, Marie, you know, I'm a I'm a research psychologist and a social cog, you know, social cog guy. So the other thing that that kind of struck, struck me, too, um, that I think is important to, to note is this whole this whole influence of like you know bilingual multilingual and how that plays into sort of dynamic cognition and the ability to adapt and some of those um, and so you know one thing one thing I'm also interested in is of course you know diversity and inclusion and how a lot of these students who are coming in either bilingual multilingual in some ways have some cognitive advantages do you mind speaking to that a little bit Oh, yeah, this is so interesting because I think uh, a lot of people probably don't understand how the multilingual brain might work, right? So, but um, but let me let me sort of preface by saying in order to to understand what happens is that the way language works for multilinguals and English language acquisition is not real intuitive. Like it's not it's not it's not what you know, I think comes out maybe in the mainstream media. And the mainstream is kind of like, well, you know, the more English you give kids at a younger age, the faster and the better they're going to learn English, right? That that seems like it makes sense. But if I were writing that, I'd put a big red, if my student wrote that, I'd put a big red X through that because that's really not how second language acquisition works for these kids. What what happens is for, for multilinguals, the more the more and the better foundation they have in their first language, the easier it is for them to transition that learning and transfer language into English. So I should say that again. So it seems like the more time you give them in English, the better, right? And in fact, what happens is, I'm not saying necessarily less time, I'm saying for multilinguals, a strong first language is what they, in oral language skills, is what they use to transfer those skills into English. So for example, so if you have a, a student that is multilingual and um, at, let's just say a young learner, um, first grade, coming in first grade, and she's learning to read and write and you have English language instruction, but you put the word in front of her for a cup, let's just say cup, C-U-P, cup. And so it's, you know, pr pretty fairly simple word to learn, but cup. But she, if you ask her to create those sounds, C-U-P, she can probably do that and do that, you know, somewhat easily. But in fact, she has no concept for what a cup is in her mind. She has in her mind the concept of a tasa, which is a cup in Spanish, a T-A-S-A, -A, which is phonetically more regular. We can talk about that in Spanish, but a tasa. So if she learns the word tasa, and she learns how to spell a tasa, then the only thing she does after that in acquiring English is just learn that, oh, a tasa means cup. She A cup is what a tasa is. She's already got the concept in her first language, and she's got the literacy in that in language because, because her, her oral language, what she knows about the world, is in the first language, right? 
So that's that's kind of what happens in terms of language transfer and second language acquisition. Uh, the, the stronger foundation we have, kids have in their first language, the easier it is, the more efficient language learners they become because they, they already know the concept, they're just learning words at this point or some some sometimes syntax and language and they've got to learn other rules, but they know already that language has rules and concepts have meaning and words have meaning if they come from a word-based language. So that's what that's kind of what happens. So um, so your question about about executive functioning and the brain and so on, we, you know, is really interesting because multilinguals, we know that their brain is functioning all of the time um, across different languages. So it's working, working, working. So the, the structure of the brain is the same. A multilingual and a monolingual, it's the same. This, the brain is structurally the same, but the way it functions is different. So multilinguals have to, have to sort of what we say, adjudicate language. They need to decide from across all the languages that they know, Spanish, English, Otomi, um, it, uh, it could be uh, Tagalog, you know, or whatever language they know, they have to decide from moment to moment which language to select, which language to adjudicate. And so they make decisions really, really quickly about language selection. And sometimes they'll switch between languages. They'll start like a sentence in English, y terminalo en español, right? So and end it in, in another language. And what's interesting is it's syntactically correct. The skill is so refined for multilinguals that they can actually speak and, you know, they, they can switch between languages. And it's it's syntactically in the right place. Even babies, multilingual babies can do this at a young age. So it's fascinating that the way the brain works through languages has tremendous cognitive benefit for them um, and for actually for everybody. It doesn't matter your age. So, so this isn't a complex issue at all. <laughs> it's what I've been hearing for the past 35 minutes. This is this is easy fix, Maria. It's an easy, it, it's an e oh, good. There's an easy fix. All right, an easy fix. <laughs> everybody needs to be multilingual. Is that the fix? Yeah. Well, let, let me, if my compatriots don't have any other questions, I was going to uh, go to our wand question. And I'm expecting big things, Maria, since you, this is your uh, second uh -oh. uh, run through and you've had time to think about because I, I usually like surprise guests with this. So for, for our new listeners, pretend you're Harry Potter for a day or Hermione Granger, you've got a magic wand. You can wave that wand to do one thing across rural America to support students, what would you do that way of the want? Yeah, well, my answer might surprise you <laughs> after that lead-in. I would like all our educators to have some proficiency in another language, that is to be multilingual. And why is that? Because we know that everyone would be smarter. <laughs> I, I think I, you're right. That, that That is simple, but yet profound. Yeah. I think I think you're right. And I think when you're talking about multilingual, I think Jared is right in the sense of we know by research and what you're telling us what works. Mm. It's it's the transition on how do we do this? And I think it could help us in funding areas if we really transitioned our schools into these community classrooms, so to speak, or this setup. So I think that's that's intriguing. Um, I, I just want to thank you for being on the show. This is unbelievable. Um appreciate your time, appreciate your patience with us, and I appreciate you explaining to our listeners your world and, and how it needs to be our world. And I do appreciate that. 
Thank you so much. Well, what a pleasure. What fun to be with you all. And, um, you know, I know the conference is just a few weeks away, so I am so excited um, for the uh, NREA conference this year in Chattanooga and um, and hopefully get a chance to meet people in person that I haven't met yet. And again, like kind of a, kind of a reach out to listeners. If there's anything I could do, you know, and uh, or anything that way I can follow up, please contact me. I'd be more than happy to to meet more yeah. people. And Chris will put your contact info if you if you want on the podcast when we drop it. Um, yeah. We'll also know that uh, you're going to the conference. We'll make sure we let people know. We'll probably this episode will come out obviously before the conference, so we'll make sure that's part of it. Um, thanks again, and th thanks for our listeners. Thanks for the support. This is one of the better episodes we've ever done. Yes, and uh, this is important, and we need to solve this. And it uh, funding alone will not solve this. We have to change how we think about things. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, what I said. It's it, it You let us in your world, but it needs to be our world. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much. Great being here. So tune in next time when we drop. We'll have a new episode coming up pretty soon. I know we're released the Rural Teacher of the Year today. And there'll be more coming. And uh, see you in Chattanooga, November 15th, 16th, and 17th. Thank you to everyone and have a good evening. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast and website are those of Dr. Alan Pratt, Dr. Jared Bingham, and Dr. Christopher F. Silver and do not represent the affiliated universities and or any organization affiliated with the hosts. This podcast and the accompanying material, including our website, represent the opinions of Dr. Alan Pratt, Dr. Jared Bingham, and Dr. Christopher F. Silver and their guests to the show and website. The content here should not be taken as medical or professional advice and should be used at your own risk. The content here is for informational purposes only and should be understood as such. The Rural Voice podcast or its hosts do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. And the information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. Further, the content of this podcast are pro the property of the National Rural Education Association and are protected under U.S. and international copyright and trademark law. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission. By listening to this podcast, you agree to the terms and conditions, and while we make every effort to ensure that the information that we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Thank you.